Hi, FT Weekend listeners. I'm Lulu Smith, filling in for Lila this week. Usually I'm a producer on this show and I'm based in London. That's where this episode begins. London is home to one of the biggest collections of the Benin bronzes, which are these sculptures and other ceremonial objects from West Africa. Most of them are housed at the British Museum, and the other day I went down to see them. So I'm in the Sainsbury Gallery in the British Museum and looking at the Benin bronzes, which are amazing. They're just so intricate and detailed. The British Museum is full of artefacts from different historical civilizations. It's enormous and kind of overwhelming, but the rooms are curated to be pretty specific. Like, there's a room called Greeks and Lycians, 400 to 325 BC. Or there's one just focused on medieval astronomy in the Islamic world. But that just isn't the case with the room that features the Benin bronzes. These are housed in a large basement space just labeled Africa, No specific time period, no specific country. Which is strange because Benin's culture still exists and the bronzes are still part of it. These are still part of everyday culture and they're still used. Like when the new king, before he like gets on his throne, there's like huge ceremonies that go on for like days to celebrate like the emergence of a new oba. And these like artifacts play a huge role during like those, those processes. Can, can you imagine doing the coronation of King Charles III next year without the crown jewels? Yeah. Exactly. That's Arnu Adioye, the FT's West Africa correspondent, talking to Josh Spiro, our associate arts editor. Arnu and Josh recently put together a big multimedia feature on the Benin bronzes. One reason why they're so interested in the Benin bronzes is that, as you've probably guessed, they were looted from Benin. In fact, The majority of the artefacts that make up the legacy of the Benin Kingdom are scattered throughout the world's museums and universities. And Josh says that has made it incredibly difficult to ask for them back. Attempts were made in the 1960s and 70s to start identifying where all of these things were, because you can't ask for things back if you don't know where they are. And of course, the European museums were very, very anti that. Mm. They deliberately made it so that they would seem, oh, you know, good custodians of this heritage and they're doing it in the object's best interest. But actually, there was a very concerted campaign to uh, keep this knowledge from coming out. Today, we dig into the story of the Benin bronzes, which Josh has been following for several years. Recently, a group of scholars has been working on just the kind of database for tracking the bronzes, which once seemed impossible. And that's feeding into a push to return them to Nigerian ownership. Then we kick off our boring topic challenge. A few weeks ago, we asked you to challenge us to make something which seems boring into something interesting. Our first topic, the psychology of supermarket layouts. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lulu Smith. I'm going to start this story by just clarifying. The Benin bronzes are actually not from Benin the country. The Benin kingdom was a powerful state in what is today southern Nigeria. It was known as one of the oldest and most developed states in coastal West Africa, and its centre still exists today as Benin City. It's actually Nigeria's third largest city in Edo State. 
The inhabitants of the Benin Kingdom were called the Edo people. And what unites all the objects known as the Benin Bronzes is that they were used in religious and cultural ceremonies by the Edo royalty, which also still exists. So it's safe to say that if the Benin Bronzes weren't in Western museums, they'd still be used regularly in Benin's cultural life. Anu and Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So I'm wondering if we can start by defining some of the terms. What are the Benin Bronzes? So the Benin Bronzes encompasses a huge range of items. They're called the Bronzes, but they were made of bronze, brass, wood, ivory, coral, and a huge range of functions too. Some are decorative things. Um, There are uh, plaques, relief plaques, showing different scenes from battles, for example. Um, There are masks, Um, One of my favourite things is a little bird, a brass bird, and you would hit it on the nose during a ceremony and it would make a sound and it was a musical instrument. Cool. Um, They call them idiophones. And there are like some of the most important artefacts that you can talk about. Probably the most uh, iconic of them is the mask of Queen Idia, which is made from ivory. Now that is in the British Museum and it became, well the original is in the British Museum, and it became an icon of the struggle Uh, In the 1970s, when uh, African nations started first trying to get back their heritage from Western museums, it became uh, the the face of the campaign, as it were. But when I went to the Benin City National Museum and an official was giving me a tour of the place, Mm -hmm. and then she showed me a replica of of the famous Queen Idia mask. And I asked her, what's happening with this mask? And then she shook her head and said... Um, the, the original is still in the British Museum. You might have come across an image of the mask of Queen Idia in the past. It's made of ivory, and it's an elongated head of a woman who's wearing a beaded headdress and a beaded choker. Her eyes look hauntingly at the viewer from below two parallel scars etched on her forehead. The mask commemorates the mother of King Ezekiel, who came to power in the early 16th century. He's also known as Oba Ezekiel, since Oba means king in Edo. Can you tell me a bit about the Edo kingdom and why these objects would have been so significant? Uh, I mean, so the Benin kingdom, I, I think Josh pointed out, it's now in present-day Nigeria. And back then, this was a way for the kingdom to represent their spiritual thought, activity and sacrifice. These materials um, were a way for the king to usually uh, pass a message of sorts. And they were part of the fabric of everyday life in Benin City. And Benin was this um, very powerful kingdom um, of its day before the British came. Yeah, so can we, um, can we talk a bit about what happened when the British came in? There was in, in the late 19th century the scramble for Africa, as it's known, when European nations divided yeah. up the entire continent. Um, Germany, Belgium, France, Britain, um, they all went for as much as they could get. And in the course of one of these expansionary raids, the British encountered the Kingdom of Benin. And the Kingdom of Benin initially fought back, at which point the British said, OK, well, we've had enough of this. And they sent masses of troops, millions of uh, bullets, and they massacred the city. They exiled the king, the Oba, as he's called. Yeah. They killed some of his chiefs, and then they stole thousands and thousands of these items. The objects then got sold and traded further, to Russia, to Israel, to the US, 
And since the 1970s, Nigeria, as the modern-day home of Benin, has been asking to have them back. You'd think the solution would be pretty straightforward. Britain stole them. Everyone who now has them gives them back. But for a long time, nobody actually knew where the objects were that they were asking for. We wrote it in the piece, right? The answer lies partly in the eternal maxim, knowledge is power. The first attempts to catalogue the Benin bronzes happened in the 1960s and 70s. Those didn't go well, as Josh said at the beginning of this episode. And in the last few years, we found out why. There is actually a document which uh, the scholar called Benedict Savoie discovered from Germany's UNESCO commission, which said, and I quote, uh, under the heading Object Inventories uh, from 1978, um, both ethnological museums and cultural administrations warn against the compilation of such lists. These would only encourage covetousness. Lists of our collections must be avoided in writings without fail. This is an extremely important principle. Very, Outrageous. Yeah, and saying covetousness is like me stealing your car and then saying, oh, you want it back? That's a bit greedy. <laughs> <laughs> so it was when you think about these things, it's like you assume that it's ignorance or oversight when, in fact, there's a kind of deliberate obfuscation to... And, and, and that was what museums, Western museums, wanted us to think. And I think one of the conclusions of the of Benedict Savoie's book and of other texts on, on this subject is that museums lie. Mm. Uh, they're not innocent, neutral organisations. But over the last few years, the ground has been shifting. In 2017, President Emmanuel Macron announced that he plans to return all of France's African art objects to Africa. And France, along with other countries, has already started doing that. Germany transferred the ownership of 1,100 Benin bronzes this summer. Not all of the bronzes will go to Benin, because some are meant to stay as ambassadors at museums abroad. But all of them now belong to Nigeria. And a load of other museums have done the same like the Smithsonian, Oxford and Cambridge Colleges, and the Horniman in London. In this more open climate, a new project has been launched which is cataloguing all the bronzes in one place. It's called the Digital Benin Project, and what you're hearing is a song recorded by one of the project's Nigerian contributors. It was written for the most recent coronation of the Benin Oba. In addition to tracing their location, the project is telling the story of the bronzes from the perspective of the people of Benin, songs included. To be clear, the Digital Benin Project is a resource. It isn't a platform for restitution. In order to get the Western museums to actually participate, the project had to assure them that they would retain their rights to the objects, and also to their digital images. I asked Arnu how all of this is being viewed in Benin City, which he recently visited. As someone who lives in Lagos, he'd never really given the bronzes much thought, but reporting this story woke him up to their ongoing significance. The general vibe now is you can't steal our stuff and then tell us how to take care of it, right? Because some of the conversations with like Western commentators and Western museums is, oh, we're not really sure if Nigeria will be a good custodian of this thing. And it's like, look, that's a moot point. Return this stuff, right? It's not yours, right? So you say you're, um, you're a recent convert. How did you feel when you were hearing all these arguments? And like, what was your sort of conversion process while you were in Benin? <laughs> um, so it was like this, 
like very slow conversion process for me. And I think just like being in Benin City, being in the museum, and also talking to Godfrey, uh, who is the uh, primary lead researcher for Digital Benin in Nigeria. And I spent like three days with him, uh, just talking to him when I was in Benin City. And I was like, you know what, this, this thing is like really important to people, right? This thing, they're not just objects to look at. I mean, they're like nice to look at, but they have like religious value to different people, right? It might not have religious value to like someone else, but it matters to a certain aspect of society. And I think like that's what basically like made me a convert. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, we should have more like nuanced conversations about restitution. So we're at a point now where some of the bronzes are being returned. Um, you say that Germany's returned more than a thousand objects. The Smithsonian in the US has returned some. The British Museum is in a very sensitive position. It's banned by law, uh, for a law from 1963, I think, from giving things back. Um, it's not allowed to. But recently, uh, when Boris Johnson was prime minister, if you can remember that many prime ministers ago, <laughs> uh, he his spokesman said, "You can." The, it's up to the trustees of the British Museum if they want to give things back. And so that suggested that maybe there wouldn't be a legal challenge. But the problem for the British Museum is that if it gives one thing back... People will say, well, why can't you give other things back? And the other things people have in their mind are the Parthenon marbles, Mm -hmm. uh, which were brought to the UK by Lord Elgin uh, a couple of hundred years ago. And the British Museum is uh, keeping a fairly... It it doesn't want any cracks in the wall because then it thinks, well, that's the Elgin marbles back. And I think we should also add that the British Museum did not put anyone up for an interview despite... Like when we were writing our article, they did not... Um, put anyone up for an interview. It seems like a kind of, there's like a sort of shirking of responsibility thing going on where they don't want to put out a statement. I mean, their position is like, we are beholden to the law and then the law is pointing back and saying, well, no, it's with you. So maybe not providing a statement is some kind of hiding. (laughs) The less clarity they have, the better it is for them. Um, mm. But of course, as journalists, clarity is what we want. Yeah. You know, they're they're in a difficult position. I'm not saying I'm sympathetic to it, but they are in a difficult position because they have a lot of things that people want back. And if they set a precedent by giving one thing back, then I think people, the claims on all the others, um, justified or not, will become much, much louder. Mm. Anu and Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks. Thank you for having us. A few weeks ago, you might remember that we asked you to challenge us. We wanted you to send us some topics that most people consider boring that you'd like us to make interesting. And you sent so many great suggestions. So challenge accepted. In the coming weeks and months, we'll be bringing you segments based on your messages. And we're starting with this one from Eugenia. I saw this thing online this morning about somebody who went to Target in the US. And he ended up spending four hours there and didn't leave with anything. So I think an interesting, boring topic would be how supermarkets lay out so that they draw you in and then you end up spending ages there not even buying what you intended to buy. Eugenia, we hear you. Who hasn't gone into a supermarket and walked out with random stuff they don't need or occasionally nothing at all? So we tracked down someone who knows a lot about supermarket layouts. 
His name is Benjamin Law. In 2020, Benjamin wrote a book about supermarkets called The Secret Lives of Groceries. And he definitely doesn't think supermarkets are boring. So uh, what's, what's your reaction to that? I mean, what do you think of the idea that supermarkets are boring as the author of yeah. The Secret Lives of Groceries? I, I mean, I think that's the, that's the great duality of supermarkets, so this uh, definitional chore totally boring mm-hmm. and yet they contain miracles right it's at our at our fingertips are options that weren't available to the greatest kings and emperors and pharaohs uh, uh, throughout history uh, and yet somehow we've managed to take that awesome display of abundance and uh, render it into boredom in our brain because we're so complacent <laughs> and so used to it benjamin says that to understand the supermarket and why we feel so manipulated by it we need to go back to its beginning so the first supermarkets in 1930 in uh, Queens, a guy named Michael Cullen founds it. And mm-hmm. people come from hundreds of miles away just to see it. I mean, his essential idea was just, we're going to make everything bigger and cheaper. And those two forces are going to kind of work together. So by making everything cheaper, you're going to make people excited to buy. They're going to fill their carts up with more. And that's going to fuel even lower prices, uh, the ability of the store to offer even lower prices. And people truly treated that first store like it was an attraction. By the 1950s, the supermarket goes international in Rome, and that's a massive hit too. And the Roman people go crazy. There's uh, press clippings of like a woman who starts running up and down the aisle screaming, this must be heaven, Uh, because (laughs) people hadn't seen that much food together at cheap prices. Can we talk about the history of the supermarket and how the design of the place fits into it? Sure. As soon as people's minds were blown by the expanse of the supermarket and the abundance that was available, they quickly turned to like various sinister machinations that the store was doing to them. And there's some great overwritten writing, you know, 19, like 1967 gentleman like A.Q. <laughs> Mowbray declares the supermarkets the sign of the greatest swindle since Eve took the, the, the <laughs> apple from the serpent And for whatever reason, the layout of the store, uh, partly because I think it was just a bigger retail space than anyone had ever seen before, becomes the Mm -hmm. locus of that. Uh, Whether there's any truth to that at all, I think (laughs) remains in question. But fast forward to now, and Benjamin says there are definitely patterns in how grocery stores today arrange their goods. Typically, you're moving anti-clockwise through the store. And, you know, you're greeted with a few big enticing symbols up front, almost always the produce, which is, you know, this primitive symbol of like food and abundance and piles of apples and oranges and um, all, yeah. the, uh, all the different types of greens. Right. And so that's the first thing you're faced with. And then you kind of get make your way through to the center aisle, the like products that never perish and then finally as you get to the register you get closer to the like higher cost density items so the smaller but um, you can cram more of them into given space uh, and they're priced more benjamin even talked to a retail architect whose job it is to make design choices at a supermarket this retail architect kevin kelly um likened the entire experience to to building a movie um, where as a customer, you're walking through a scene. And, and so there would be some very obvious symbols, you know, maybe that produce and those flowers that signal abundance. And then you walk through and, and there are various symbols there, depending on who you are, 
Right. Um, and each chain will have its own signifier. So some people who fashion themselves as a bargain hunter might walk into a bare bones retail warehouse where the food is stacked on pallets. And that could be a pretty intentional decision on the part of the retailer. Oh, we don't want to have a lavish experience. We don't want to have well-lit <laughs> stores. And, and that's going to trigger something in the brain of this bargain hunter that's going to be very positive. One thing in particular that I wanted to zero in on is music playlists. Yeah. Um, what, like, what is going on with them? Did you speak to anyone who helps curate them? God, I wish I had. I should have. I, <laughs> so I talked to Trader Joe, who is this guy who founded the American chain Trader Joe's, which is something of a phenomenon here. And he copped quickly to have read an, a New Yorker article that's claimed that people slowed down when listening to Hawaiian music. And so in his early days, he would blast Hawaiian music in his stores uh, in this hope to create this lackadaisical mood in his customers as they like leisurely move through the store. <laughs> um, eventually, though, his clerks complained because they just were being driven mad by the same like, you know, lilting sounds of Hawaii. And, and they, re right. they revolted and, and refused to play it. Um I think the general theory holds of like, let's create some music that, that hits your target audience that, that really speaks to the consumer. So, you know, you'll, you'll see like these kind of hip jazz playlists at some of the more upscale chains because they're basically like crying out to say, this is not the mom and pop store you went to as a kid with this terrible stale Muzak blasting. Um, we, right, we get yeah. you. We're putting some we're putting some Herbie Hancock and John Coltrane on because you're a sophisticated <laughs> person who belongs in a sophisticated grocery store. So all of this has been designed to make us feel a certain way. It's very detailed and very intentional. But to the extent that it's trying to brainwash us, Benjamin is skeptical. I would guess I would just flip it on its head. I, I think it's like the supermarket has always been about creating an attraction to create people want to buy more. I think in doing that, you want to create an environment that is conducive to them staying. Uh, you want to create an mm -hmm. environment that makes the place pleasant and pleasurable. Uh, it, it's, it's hard for me to frame that as a sinister act on the part of the grocer. <laughs> I mean, what are they supposed to make this? Some horrid place that we're like <laughs> pushing our carts through and like pelting us with cold water. And that, you know, it doesn't really add up in my head as like a sinister act. I think, of course, that's happening. Benjamin says people often mistake the common pattern of grocery stores for a conspiracy. Like there's this idea that the milk and eggs are in the back because that's the stuff that everyone comes in to buy. And so putting them at the back forces shoppers to go through the whole store. And then they're exposed to everything on the way and start to fill up their carts. But according to Ben, the truth is that cooling systems need CO2 condensers, and the most efficient way to arrange them is against a big wall. So most refrigerated items end up in the back. Focusing on like a customer's footpath through the store, it's like an, almost a hangover from these simpler times. We wish that we were being manipulated by our footpath. What happens is, in fact, we're being manipulated on like much more macro levels. In the U.S., we are in a place where five firms control 65% of the market. And that offers a real opportunity for customer manipulation. Still, before I let Ben go, I was interested to know how he wastes his money in a supermarket. Is he a bargain hunter or is he that bougie guy who'll only stay in the shop if John Coltrane is playing? 
Is there anything which you buy in the supermarket which is pointless? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tons you- of things. Every time I leave, I leave with a pint of blueberries and a chocolate bar <laughs> and maybe a tin of sushi that I didn't intend to get. Um, and I do think of it as a reward for doing this chore. I'm like, oh, well, mm. you know what? I did this chore. I might as well give myself a chocolate bar. Um, makes no sense. It's not a good purchase. <laughs> but the only thing that's sinister that's going on there is inside of me <laughs> and my need to like, you know, fill whatever hole is inside by getting some super nice product for myself. I, I feel like it would be pretty unfair yeah. to blame whoever was stocking that shelf. Benjamin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend from the Financial Times. We're still collecting your cultural predictions for 2023, which we'll be going through in our final episode of the year with FT Magazine editor Matt Vella. So what cultural shifts do you think will happen or want to happen in 2023? Will Dolly Parton go into politics? Will MySpace be resurrected following the collapse of Twitter? Click on the link in the show notes to tell us and throw in some curveballs. Surprise us. I'm Lulu Smith, and here's our team. Katya Kumkova is our senior producer, Molly Nugent is our contributing producer, and we had help this week from Manuela Saragosa, Josh Gabbett-Doyon, and Vicky Merrick. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko, with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer, with special thanks to Cheryl Brumley. Have a lovely weekend. Lila will be back next week. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.